Gospel, chapter 14, from verse 26. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible. Mark 14, from verse 26. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you yourself, this very night, before a cock crows twice, shall three times deny me. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. We are only going to deal with these few verses, the last passage uh, in this um, section I have entitled The Threshold of its Supreme Service and Work. I thought it was rather uh, foolish uh, to go beyond those verses and break into a new, uh, rather large and vital uh, section of, of Mark's Gospel, as I shall be away for a while. So we're going to spend this evening upon these few verses, 27 to 31, Christ's prediction of the disciples falling away. Uh, I have also called it the false basis for service. The false basis for service. Somewhere on the walk between the upper room and the Mount of Olives, Christ made this prediction, the prediction that every single one of the disciples would fall away. Verses 27 and 28. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to... Galilee. Now there are just one or two things I'd like you to note straight away about these two verses. The first is the stark simplicity and suddenness of Christ's words. Mark is a master at dramatic simplicity. And you've got all the feeling here of a thunderbolt. Something that broke upon the disciples like a clap of thunder. They were just, just gone out after singing that marvellous Passover hymn. They were walking somewhere uh, between the upper room and um, the Mount of Olives when suddenly the Lord Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, 
I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. These words must have come, as I've said, uh, as a great shock, like a thunderbolt to all of them. I am sure that it came to them as great a shock as when he had said earlier in the supper that Judah, that one of them would betray him. That had been a great shock to them. This was their second great shock that night. The second thing I want you to note about these two verses is this word, you will all fall away. You will all fall away. The Revised Standard Version uses that fall away. The New American Standard Bible uses uh, that rendering. Uh, you will see that it is, you will all be offended in the authorized version, the, the revised version, and the American Standard Version. You will all lose your faith in me, is the way J.B. Phillips renders it. And the New English Bible puts it simply, you will all fall from your faith. The word means literally cause to stumble. It was not persecution of these disciples that caused them to stumble. Don't get that into your head, that they, had been, they, were, they were persecuted, and because they were persecuted or pressure was brought to bear on them, they, they collapsed. Nothing of the kind. When they came to arrest Christ, it was Christ they wanted. There was no question of arresting the disciples or doing anything with the others. Uh, what caused them to stumble was exactly what Christ predicted. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In other words, the thing that caused the disciples to stumble, to fall away, to lose their faith in Christ was what was happening to him. They couldn't understand it. Why didn't he throw them into confusion? Why didn't he destroy them? Why didn't he call on heaven to come in and deliver him? That's what caused their collapse of faith. It was too much for their faith. And it caused them to stumble. Third thing I want you to notice about these two verses is that Christ's prediction is in fact not negative, as so often understood and read, but positive. Peter and the disciples got stuck, as I'm afraid we all do, on you will all fall away. Because that was the thing that came like a clap of thunder. They got stuck on that and they never got beyond it. All Peter's protests, his vehemence, is centered upon this one thing, the Lord's prediction, you will all fall away. We forget that what the Lord said was not negative. It wasn't, you will all fall away, full stop. It wasn't even, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. It was this, this vital continuation. But, after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Now that shows the infinite tenderness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he spoke of their restoration. We have called this the prediction of the disciples falling away. 
that is correct. But in many ways, I suppose we really ought to call it the prediction of the disciples' restoration. You see, just think, what did the Lord mean? But after I am raised, I will go before you. They were still going to be led by him. He was still going to meet them. The thing was going to happen. They were going to be restored. He speaks of scattering. He speaks of going before them into Galilee. In other words, the regathering of them, their restoration. I think this is a, a lovely thought to remember, that um, the Lord is always positive and never negative. Then the fourth thing I just want you to note about these two verses is the striking fact that Christ changed the words of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, of course, liberals often make a, have a, had a heyday, a field day on this. And, of course, there are other um, uh, evangelicals who will, are afraid to admit anything uh, along this line and try to pretend that uh, it hasn't happened. But the fact remains that the Lord Jesus deliberately changed the words of Zechariah's prophecy. If you turn back to Zechariah chapter 13, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7, we read the original wording of this prophecy. Zechariah 13 verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, that is the original prophecy. The Lord Jesus said here in verse 27, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd. Now, I suppose it's more correct to say that the Lord Jesus has paraphrased the first sentence of the original prophecy, which is, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Strike the shepherd. He has paraphrased that whole sentence into the two words, I will. Now, this Mark chapter 14, verse 27 is not a variant reading from the Septuagint. Some of you will have noticed, those of you with keener intelligences, that um, in the New Testament, you sometimes get quotations from the Old Testament which are not exactly what you have in the Old Testament. That is because the New Testament church used the old Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there's just that slight variation uh, now and again. But there is no variant reading in the Greek, in the Septuagint, for this verse. Both the Hebrew and the Greek say precisely the same. Smite the shepherd, <coughs> and I will scatter the, sh uh, and the, and the sheep shall be scattered. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. The Lord changed it, or paraphrased it, into I will strike the shepherd, and thus makes the meaning clearer, stronger, and more direct. 
In fact, the way in which Christ quotes this prophecy brings us face to face with the fact that God himself is behind both Calvary and the sufferings of Christ. A Judas there might be, a Caiaphas there might be, an Annas there might be, a Herod there might be, a Pontius Pilate there may be, evil men there may be, Roman military might, Jewish prejudice and bigotry, all these things may be, but in the final analysis, above and behind it all is the sovereignty of God. Jesus said, it is written, I, the Lord of hosts, will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now if you turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, it seems to me that Peter got hold of this lesson only after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had got into him. Uh, then he had divine illumination for the first time. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, by the hand of lawless men, did crucify and slay. In other words, you've got the two things again. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, on the one hand, and on the other, the hands, or the, the, the hands of lawless men. This is a term, of course, meaning the Gentiles. Uh, meaning Pontius Pilate, uh, those who are without the law, not circumcised. Um, you've got these two things brought together. Ye, by the hands of lawless men, did crucify and slay. Jewish and Gentile sinfulness, responsibility in this matter, and on the other hand, the sovereignty of God. Well, we've got all that in this verse. Then there's another thing I'd like you to note about these two verses before we pass on to what is recorded here, um, and that is we have another example of the fact that Christ never spoke of his death or sufferings. We have no record in the Gospels that he ever spoke of his death or sufferings apart from his resurrection and the glory which would follow. Now I say this because some Christians, once they begin to see something of the cross and something of the fellowship of his sufferings, stop there. They become so heavy, so under a weight. They go round and round as if somehow or other death in itself is a wonderful thing. As if suffering in itself is something to be commended. Whereas you see, the word of God always tells us that death is a means to an end. We let go in order to find. We go down in order to come up. We go into death in order that we may be raised. Always, always, always it has an end. We suffer with him that we may be also glorified with him. And so we can go on. Always the positive is linked with the negative. So let's just underline that little lesson that the Lord Jesus never ever spoke of his death full stop. He always spoke of the resurrection and the glory that would 
follow. His death was the means to an end. And then lastly, about these verses, Ron pointed out to me, and I think it's so worth um, uh, noting that I put it in the notes for you all, in verse 28, in Christ's words, I will go before you. After I am raised up, I will go before you. We see a continuation of the idea of the shepherd in um, verse 27. I will strike the shepherd. In the east, the shepherd never follows the sheep. The sheep always follow the shepherd. And here we've got a lovely picture, not of a shepherd who is crucified, who is killed, who is murdered, but of a shepherd who is alive by the power, with the power of an endless life to lead us. I will go before you into Galilee. This reminds you, <coughs> me very much of the verses, for instance, in John 10, verse 4, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You've got the same thing again in verse 47. Or, again, we have it in uh, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. It's almost as if the writer to the uh, Hebrews had got this verse in mind. This is what he says. Verse 20. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, make you perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, now it just seems as if the writer to the Hebrews had these verses in mind. That great shepherd of the sheep brought again from the dead with the blood of an eternal covenant this time, and then he's going to do something in everyone who's been saved by the blood of that eternal covenant. Peter surely had this also in mind in 1 Peter 2 and verse 25 when he said in his own words, Ye were going astray like sheep, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. I think it might be an idea if we had that door open. Well, now then, let's go on to verse 29. It was the personal directness of Christ's words which occasioned Peter's immediate and spontaneous reaction here in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Or I think it says in the older version, all may be offended, but not me. Or, but I will not. Um, the strength of Peter's character uh, had been affronted, as I think only a strong man can be. The, the, he resented the implication of weakness, of, of, uh, that he was weak or spineless, that he was capable of a faithlessness which would or could desert his master in his hour of need. 
He was made of very different stuff indeed. And uh, in fact, of course, it was his pride which was hurt. It was not the strength of his spiritual life which was affronted. It was the strength of his self-life which had been affronted. We need to note that, I think, quite carefully. It's instructive to note here how Peter fastens onto all that which involves him, which centers on him, and ignores totally far weightier and more significant matters. For instance, Peter fastens on the little word, you will all fall away. That's the thing that's stuck in his throat. That's the thing that affronted him. Well, maybe the others might. John always was a bit soft and poetic anyway. Thomas was a brain, rather otherworldly, always up in the air, bookworm. Maybe they could fall away. But not me. I'm a tough fisherman. I'm a person who's, who's lived life. I've got different stuff in me. They might fall away, I can understand that, but not me. He was affronted by the personal directness of the Lord's words. You will all fall away. Oh, you're wrong, said Peter. They might fall away, possibly, but not me. You've, you've, uh, uh, you've uh, sort of barking up the wrong tree on this matter. I'm, uh, uh, I'm quite a different type of person. Now, it's that which affronts him, you will all fall away. The far more significant and weightier word of the Lord, it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter completely dismisses. He doesn't even mention it. It has no bearing at all as far as he's concerned on him. Oh, how light us all. Anything which involves us we're interested in. How things affect us we're interested in. How they're centered upon us. That's of immediate interest. But how things affect Christ, how things affect the kingdom of God, how things affect others, we're not interested. We find it boring. If we can talk about my need, and go round and round in a circle like a whirlpool, round my need. If we can only even talk about what I shall be in the kingdom, or what the reward I shall get, or anything else that somehow titivates and uh, fascinates and entertains my self-centeredness, we're quite interested in. <coughs> but if it's anything to do with the glory of the Lord, and the purpose of the Lord, beyond and above me, anything to do with the vindication of God and of his Christ, that we find a dry and boring subject. We're all like Peter and these ten. I think it is something that uh, uh, we ought to take careful note of. Peter is very disturbed if not angry, that the Lord 
has, mi- has misrepresented him. Now, there's nothing like our um, self-life getting up in arms if once we feel we've been misrepresented, especially if the person who misrepresents us happens to be uh, someone m- uh, more in the public eye. Oh! Well, as I say, poor old Peter. He had a very bad time about this matter. I've no doubt afterwards when he reflected on it after his restoration and he thought back upon it all, oh, how little he must have felt. That he could have ignored the most tremendous thing of all. He never even asked the Lord, what do you mean I will strike the shepherd? What does it mean? I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will all be scattered. So interested in himself and his own well-being and how things affected him that he could only take hold of one little verse, you will all fall away. The rest we can forget and disregard. We see ourselves here, painted in stark colours. Christ then predicted that within hours, Peter would not only have deserted him, but would have denied him Three times, no less than three times. Now, there's no one like the Lord, once he's dealing with our self-life, to prod it into action in order that it might be absolutely dealt with. The Lord could have kept quiet here. But there was reason in it. The Lord was bringing Peter to an end of himself, and indeed the other ten. And so he further he makes this further prediction. Within hours, not, not a week, not a month, when they had time, as it were, to, to be away from him for a while, but within hours, what he has said will in fact come to pass, and Peter will have denied and disowned his own master in spite of what he's just said. Now, I want you to note two little things about this verse um, 30. Uh, We'll just read it um, again. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Um, Mark alone adds this one word twice. All the other Gospels, uh, Mark, uh, Luke and Matthew, say before the cock crows. Uh, Mark says before the cock crows twice. Now, this is a phrase, the cock crowing, is a phrase which was used for the third watch of the night, which was technically from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, if you turn back, those of you who are interested, to uh, Mark 13 and verse 35, you find this is used in this technical sense. Watch, therefore, for ye know not when the Lord of the house cometh, whether at even, or at midnight, or at cock-crowing, or... In the morning. Cock crowing was technically the third watch from 12 to 3, but it came in common language to be used of 3 a.m. So it has often been said that what the law was really saying to uh, Peter was before 3 a.m. this night, you will have denied me. In actual fact, Mark points out to us that it was a literal prediction. For later on, in Mark, this same chapter, 14 and verse 72, we're told, and the cock crowed again. And Peter went out and wept 
bitterly. So it was not only to do with the third watch, it was a literal fulfilment of the Lord's words. The other little point I just want to um, make is this, this day, even in this night, verse 30. This day, even in this night. I see that the Revised Standard Version has rubbed out this day altogether and just said this very night because evidently they feel that Gentile readers couldn't quite understand this. Uh, in the New English Bible, it is today, this very night. By Jewish reckoning, then as now, the day begins with sunset. So in actual fact, it was today, this very night. For on the Jewish way of reckoning things, it is the only way of reckoning uh, uh, um, time where you put night first followed by day. All the other systems in the world follow the other way around, more or less. So, um, it, today, this very night, it is actually noteworthy in this connection that everything recorded from Mark 14, verse 17, right through to chapter 15 and verse 41 happened within that one day. The Passover, the prediction of their um, uh, falling away, the giving of the Lord's table, prediction of their falling away, Gethsemane, the arrest, the three trials, the crucifixion of Christ, every single thing happened within this one short day. Well, now let's go on. This further and unmistakably detailed prediction only caused Peter to more vehemently insist that even if it meant death, he would never disown or deny Christ. Verse 31. He said vehemently, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. That little word, vehemently, in your revised version, spake exceeding vehemently. In the authorized version, it's the more vehemently. He spake the more vehemently. In the New English Bible it says he insisted and repeated that even if he had to die with the Lord he wouldn't deny him. And the thought in this phrase is not easily put into English by any single uh, phrase. The, the, the New American Standard Bible is probably um, as good a rendering as any, the one we read this evening. Here it is. Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Um, really the idea behind it is a sort of offended and insulted disciple who is so caught, as it were, on a raw spot, uh, that um, uh, he insists repeatedly that this could not be so. How could the Lord have so completely misunderstood his character, to have so completely understood the kind of person he was? Peter would not have it. Christ should have known better than to have said something like that. And Peter was not going to let him get away with it. With vehemence and insistence, he sought to get into Christ's mind the truth of the matter. 
that he was the kind of person who would rather die than let down a loved one. Now that is the measure of Peter's blindness and deception on this matter. We must not, however, be too hard on Peter, for he only spoke out aloud what the others either thought or very quietly affirmed. All people who speak out always get into trouble. And um, Peter, in a sense, is the hope and comfort of all those who put their foot in it, as we say in Irish, open your mouth wide and put your foot in it. That kind of person um, can take great comfort from Peter. They always get into trouble. They always get hauled over the coals, when there are any. And um, they're always being sort of pulled up with a, with a jerk. But in actual fact, you know, often those people only blurt out what everyone else is thinking. They wouldn't dare to say it out loud. They sort of put into words what others just murmur in a kind of abstract manner in the background because they're far too clever and far too diplomatic and far too political so that when someone like Peter says it, they can say, oh, shouldn't have said it. I mean, that's wrong, really, especially if they happen to see the Lord's reaction. Then they can sort of go back and say, well, of course, you see. I mean, I, I, I really do think that was rather bad. I mean, to say what he said like that, to say it with such vehemence, I mean, I mean, you don't have to say it so vehemently. You don't have to insistently keep on saying the thing. But they'd all thought it. And it is most beautifully put here in verse 31. And they all said the same thing too. You can't get away from that. Good basic English. They all said the same thing too. They all said the same thing. So in fact, people quite, they all go for Peter. Poor old Peter is the, the whipping boy in this passage. They tell us how poor he was, how empty-headed he was, how brash he was, how impetuous he was. But in actual fact, they all said the same thing too. Now, what are the lessons we can get from this passage? We've gone through these verses. Now the lessons. This is what I really want to dwell on. For I believe we have a tremendous lesson. Peter is so often misrepresented here on the basis of this passage as if he, as I've already just said, were making some brash, insincere, empty-headed vow or claim. Oh, Peter again, making one of his big, wordy claims that has no backing and substance to it. As if Peter was always speaking before he thought. Thoughtless speak. This passage is therefore looked upon as the most striking example of his impetuous thoughtlessness in the whole gospel record. I don't think so at all. 
I don't think so at all. Now, of course, I know I can't be dogmatic. I shall be dogmatic for myself. Um, you can't really be wholly dogmatic not until we're in glory, but I don't think this is true. I think Peter is totally misrepresented on this matter. It seems to me that in his reaction and in his words, Peter was both honest and sincere. Let that be said. Both honest and sincere, absolutely honest and absolutely sincere. He was really saying what he felt. He was expressing himself in the only way he could. Indeed, I think we must say, it seems to me again, that all eleven disciples were absolutely genuine in their affirmation that they could not. It was inconceivable that they could ever desert Christ. Now I believe that was no empty-headed affirmation. It was honest and sincere. They really believed that it was out of question that they could fail the Lord or, or um, desert him. That is not the problem. This is not the problem of empty-headedness. This isn't even the problem of thoughtlessness. God knows how much there is of both thoughtlessness and empty-headedness in Christian circles. But this is not the problem here. The problem was not whether Peter or the disciples had thought enough, or willed enough, or felt enough before they spoke whether they had spoken too quickly and without due consideration. That's not the problem. The problem, in fact, let us say it, the problem, in fact, would have been precisely the same whether Peter had spoken or kept silence. He would still have fallen away, and so would the rest. Get that? They could have all been absolutely their lips stitched up and they would have all still fallen away. That's not the problem. They spoke out loud without too much thought. The problem was an uncrucified self-life. That is the problem. Thought or no thought, zeal or no zeal, silence or many words, the problem remains unchanged. It remains the same. Now, here we might well ask what it is that causes any one of us who belong to Christ to be offended or caused to stumble. I've seen many, many believers stumble. I've seen young believers stumble. I have seen old believers stumble. I have seen servants of the Lord suddenly collapse and go back. I've seen people of all age groups, spiritually, as well as physically, lose their faith in Christ. What is it that causes us to lose our faith in Him? The answer is quite simple. The cause of stumbling can invariably be traced to an unbroken, uncrucified self-life. 
In this matter, we are no different to Peter or to the other ten. Now, that's why I have entitled this passage The False Basis for Service. Uh, the self-life with its resources, with its gifts, with its strength, even with its Churchillian grit, if you're blessed with such uh, 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 a temperament, uh, is not the basis for genuine service. The, the Apostle Peter may well have had real courage. Fishermen are not unknown for their courage. He may well have had real courage and real grit, but it wasn't good enough. That natural grit, that natural courage, could not be the basis for the service of God. It may mean well, it may be quite honest and sincere. It may be very knowledgeable, biblically. But it will always break down when the real test and crisis comes. <clears throat> For however clever or talented we might be naturally, on the natural level, it can be totally blind to its true condition and character. You remember the words of our Lord in Revelation chapter 3, which just sum this up. Chapter 3 and verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and have gotten riches, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art the wretched one, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, the whole problem of our self-life is that with all its gifts and with all its talents and with all its knowledge and with all its zeal, it can at the same time be totally blind to its real condition. It can parade itself. It can exhibit itself. It can even fling itself into work for God and be totally blind to its own true character. The Lord Jesus once said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Strong words. He didn't mean Peter was Satan-possessed, devil-possessed. What he meant was this, that that natural life with all its gifts and talents and strength was ground for Satan. Unless it is brought to the cross. The fact of the matter is simply this, that the unbroken, uncrucified eye never goes through in spiritual things. Now I say it again, just in case anyone uh, misses it, never goes through in spiritual things. It may go through on the natural level, it may go through in university life, it may go through in social work, it may go through on all kinds of levels of human society, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the service and work of God, it never goes through. Why? Because there is a divine veto on it. That is why. Just like in the United Nations, some of the superpowers have a, a veto, they can veto what they will, and the whole thing has to be dropped, just like that. Heaven has a veto 
on this matter of the natural man, the self-life of any believer. And it's no matter how you gloss over it, how you dress it up, how much spiritual language you put into its lips, heaven says no, no, no. It may have courage, it may have personality, it may have character, it may have a lot of other things, but heaven says no. There is a divine veto on it. Now, we often find this very hard to accept. That there should be such a veto on the character of Judas, we all recognize as absolutely necessary. A traitor, a thief, someone who can betray his own Lord whilst being in the closest and most intimate relationship with him, we all well understand that upon a person like Judas, that kind of nature, that kind of character, that kind of life, there is a veto. We say amen. But that there should be a veto on Peter. On the kind of person Peter is. His natural strength. His natural abilities. His natural gifts. That we find very hard to recognize. Unless, however, the origin of our strength. The impetus of our strength, the dynamic of our strength, of our gifts, our talents, our service is Christ, we must inevitably fail in divine things. And the whole Bible is the record of failure after failure after failure of those who've entered into divine things with the wrong equipment. Trying as it were, to push through the sound barrier without being equipped for it. They get burnt up. How many people have done this? This is where the fear of the Lord comes in. How hardly we learn the lesson that whenever we depend upon ourselves in the Christian life or in the service of God, relying on our own resources and strength, we fail. Have you learnt that lesson yet? <coughs> Look back into your life. Every failure that marks your life, you will discover that you depended upon your own resources. You relied upon yourself. We learn the lesson so hard. Indeed, I must say this, that the measure of our self-reliance is often the measure of our failure. We see it in Peter. Peter was so totally self-sufficient. Therefore, Peter fell more deeply than the other ten. However, let me say another thing about this matter. Again and again, it's proved that where we have thought we were strongest, just at that point, our failure comes. Have you had that experience? Oh, no need to bother about that. I'm strong on that point. The Lord, devil will never get me there. Mm, I'm absolutely tough there. Hmm. I've seen it again and again. People who felt that, well, <coughs> I've never had any problem about faith. 
Never had any problem about faith. Oh, I'm strong, they They think they stand. And suddenly they fall. Just at the point where they seem to be strongest. Where they think they're strongest. Yeah. Someone says, well, you know, I, I can be pushed around. I can take it. I, I've been pushed around quite a lot in life. I, I can take it. <coughs> and then they get pushed around. Just a little bit too far. Like the last straw on the camel's back. They're down. Again and again, it's where we think we're strongest that our failure comes. Just as Peter thought this was his strong point. Oh, Lord, talk about other things. I might fail possibly on this or that, but you desert you, my faithfulness to you, is the strongest thing about my character and life. Why I wouldn't sell my relationship with you for anything. It'd be unthinkable for me to deny or disown you. But it was just where he thought he was strongest that his most tragic and terrible failure came. I say it's a lesson which we hardly learn. Because when we have failed, and have failed miserably and dismally, and when we recover in some measure, we continue to look to our self-life to produce works and fruit acceptable to God. Have you found that? You've had a terrible collapse. You know jolly well it's something to do with your self-life. But as soon as you're through, just with your head above the water again, you start looking straight back to the old trouble. Now I must try and do better. Got to do better. So what we're really doing is we're looking for our old self-life to produce works and fruit acceptable to God. We find it very hard to, to come in reality to the position of the Apostle Paul, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Or in Philippians uh, chapter 3 and verse 3, we are those who have no confidence in the flesh. How hardly we come to that point. But that's exactly where the Lord was leading Peter and these other ten. Now, let me say this in our closing uh, moments this evening, Christian work and service is littered with tragedies along this line. Let everyone in this room who thinks he stands take heed, lest he become just one further tragedy. Wherever you look in church history, or today, you will see littered on all sides the wreckage of lives who set out to serve God and a fallen casualty. Christians who, having consecrated themselves to God's work, having been officially trained and qualified, gone through the normal and traditional channels or otherwise, find in the end if they are honest, that there is a terrible discrepancy between the Word of God and their own experience. And find furthermore that when the real test or crisis comes, it's too much for them. Like Peter, like the other ten, we fail, we lose our faith in Christ, our service 
has proved to be on a false basis. Nor, let me say this, is it always apparent outwardly. I wish it was. I have a far greater admiration for someone like Peter, who not only says out loud what he thinks, but his failure is apparent and clear to everyone who wants to see it. It is not always so. There are many pillars of salt in Christian life and service. Where somehow or other a terrible change has taken place inwardly. Unbelief has taken over under the guise of faith. Outwardly everything is the same. Inwardly unbelief and doubt has taken over. And then gradually our service becomes nominal and professional. The heart has gone. Let me say further this evening that the lesson we have here is not in any way negative. I've said quite a bit which could well frighten us or depress us or even condemn us. But this story has not been recorded to depress us or frighten us or condemn us. It's been told to encourage us. Far from being a picture of dismal failure and hopelessness, it is in fact full of hope. At the very point where Christ predicts their falling away, he... he speaks of their recovery. Indeed, Luke tells us, quite clearly, that Christ spoke to Peter of his, of his having prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And then, he's going on to speak of Peter's restoration as a certain. It's most beautifully put in Luke 22. When thou hast turned again, strengthen thy brethren. Now, isn't that beautiful? The very one who thought he was so strong, who found out he was so weak, has been told, when you turned again, strengthen your brethren. With another kind of strength. Divine strength. Spiritual strength. Strength through the Holy Spirit. The very strength of the resurrection life of Christ. Well, I can only say that I think this is a picture of real hope. Somewhere in Christ's busy and hectic life, he'd found the time to pray for Peter. That's true service. These 11 disciples were to change beyond recognition. The same, the very same men who were to desert Christ, to run away and hide themselves, were the same men who became the fearless champions of the gospel. The, the lips which denied and disowned Christ with oaths and curses were the very same lips which preached the first message of the new age and thousands and thousands were converted. 
these same disciples who had been so blind, so uncomprehending, so dull of hearing and insensitive to the Holy Spirit were the same ones who were to be used by the Holy Spirit to teach and lead the church and even to write scripture. These whose uncrucified self-life had led to their abject failure were the same men who were, through the cross and the Spirit, to become partakers of the divine nature and to prove the power of an endless and new life. These men, baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, were to turn the whole world upside down. Where the chain? How the chain? Why the chain? Because the same one whom they deserted is the one who loved them and loved them right the way through into being different men. That's why there is no other explanation for this change than the love of God the determination of divine love to get these men through. Jesus said in his last prayer, I have guarded them and none of them is lost, save the son of perdition. He wasn't going to give them up, having kept them to the cross. He was going to see that the cross came into them, that the Holy Spirit made real his work on the cross brought them into a living experience of the life and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, I think this is so wonderful when, we, when it really begins to dawn upon us. He was not only going to give himself for them, that they might be justified, forgiven, cleansed, but that they, being delivered from themselves, might know his life and his nature and his power dwelling in them. It would take all of Calvary and all of Pentecost to produce that. But the determination of divine love would see that that work was done. Now, that must be true of us. That's why this story has been recorded. The Spirit of God must lead us also to know in deep and true experience both Calvary and Pentecost. In no other way can we be made safe for God's work and service. Any other basis is a false one. And any other basis must lead to failure and collapse. Let then every one of us be encouraged no matter who it is, the Christ who loves us, who died for us, is the same Christ who prays for us this evening. Whoever lives to make intercession for them, saved to the uttermost, whoever lives to make intercession for them, if he prayed for Peter, your name has been on his lips, perhaps even this evening. Your actual name 
It says in Romans 8 and verse 34 that um, he has gone to the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. It says in, in Hebrews 9 and verse 24, who has gone into heaven there to appear before the face of God for us. Dear child of God, it's divine love that has saved us. And it is divine love that is determined to get us through into a deep and real experience of both Calvary and Pentecost, all the trouble we give him. The contradictions we provide him. The rebellions that there are in our hearts. This Christ will not rest until he has brought us through to the practical experience of union with himself. Till we are on the true basis for service. Christ will not let one of us go till we know the kind of service which flows out of divine love, which can lay down its life for others, which can lose itself for his sake and the gospel's. Now, it may well be part of the divine plan to bring us as Peter and the disciples into circumstances and situations where we utterly and dismally fail. Many of us can look back to times in our lives where we thank God for the places where God led us into, where he knew it was a kind of spiritual waterloo. When we come to that kind of place, it's not easy. But God leads us into it. Who led these disciples to this place? Christ. And it was not some harsh severity that brought them into it, but love itself. A place where we come painfully to see that the basis for our service is false where we see with horror the naked reality of our self-life, just how self-centered we are, just how self-seeking we are in his service. Have you been there? That's where Peter came that night. We are prepared to disown our own Lord and the things we hold most dear to keep our skin intact. Have you found that you're capable of that? If you haven't, you have not been led yet to this place. God leads us here. Where we see that we use his surface service as a means of self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction. It's not a laying down of our lives. It's not a losing of ourselves for him and for his gospel. At such a point, we feel, like Peter, that all is lost. 
that we're finished spiritually, forever disqualified from the service of God. Such a time is always a time of acute pain, of bitter tears, of loneliness, of desolation. All our cherished dreams and aspirations lie broken around us. All those ideas of powerful usefulness for our Lord in his service are dead, snuffed out. It's not easy. Yet it is in fact not the end of our service but it's true beginning. What we thought was service was not. Quite correctly, we could say in another sense that it is the end of our service and the beginning of his service in and through us. For like Peter, we may find that we have lost a superficial faith even in him, only to discover that our real faith, the gift of God to us, has not failed. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus concerning Peter, at this very, at this very time, I pray for thee that thy faith fail not. The charm has been blown away. The devil's got the charm. God has got the wheat. <coughs> If such be the case, then we, like Peter, will be eternally thankful. Well, may the Lord help us to understand this passage. Uh, we all make big claims at times. Not all of the claims we make are just empty-headed and thoughtless. Often they're honest and sincere but they come from the wrong kind of life. Their origin is our self-life. We can do no other. We can only express ourselves in the way we do express ourselves. But God, in his infinite mercy, doesn't wash his hands of us, doesn't reject us. He takes us through, brings us to an end, and then takes us through into something else. I say it's worth going to a place like that and weeping bitter tears like Peter if it means that when you stand up 3,000 people get saved or if you can lay your hands on a man uh, who has been crippled all his life and he jumps up healed there's something to be said for losing the kind of service which is just the tinsel and discovering that there's another kind of service in us the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. God help us then to be ready because this isn't just a nice little story for everyone who would serve the Lord. There comes their point of collapse. And that point of collapse has to be turned by the grace of God into such an experience of Calvary and Pentecost that they have come through into a new sphere all together. Shall we pray? And now, Lord, we commit ourselves to thee and pray that thou wilt make this thy word real to us and in us, Lord. Oh, Father, how we need all of us to be delivered from 
that kind of service which cannot go through. Lord, wilt thou, we pray, bring every one of us through the cross and thy spirit to a place where we know what it is to serve thee in the spirit. Lord, help us to understand this. Make it, we pray, alive and real to every one of us. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus.